you find your place there, let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and his holy word this morning. Lord, we would confess with the apostles and the prophets and David as he exclaimed, righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You've commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. Our zeal has consumed us because our adversaries have forgotten your words. Reproaches which are meant for you have fallen on us. So, Lord, we pray that as we go to your word, your commandments, your statutes, that we would see that your testimonies are indeed righteous forever, and that you would give us understanding by your spirit that we might live, that we live in a way that brings you praise and you glory as we seek to show your majesty in the affections of our heart and the deeds that we live. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4, verses, verses 17 to 24 this morning. What pertinent passage of Scripture. We live in an age of skepticism. Christ shows that there is one God and that the true God is the God of the Bible, not of, God, of man's imagination. If you look at some of the early apologists, uh, some, some, either early apologists like Paul with the Oropagus or uh, more contemporary, uh, Francis Schaeffer, who starts off in his early apologetic writings saying that the existence of God is the starting point of our evangelism. And his classic statement of this foundational point is that God is there and He is not silent. And if God is not silent, His people cannot be silent, and we must speak to the age in which we live. It's evident why we must start at this point. If God exists, and we can know that He exists, then everything else follows from that premise of God's existence. If God does not exist, or we cannot know He exists, then Nothing follows except for chaos. The proponents of atheistic evolution, to use one example uh, to, to point to the, the age in which we live, there, there are a lot that we could point to, but they, they argue that everything that exists, including ourselves, has come about entirely by chance. There have been no guiding mind or, or plan. It just happened. One day, for no reason, certain inorganic compounds like hydrogen, water, ammonia, and carbon dioxide, which were existing for no real reason in the first place, united to form bioorganic compounds like amino acids and sugars. And these bioorganics united to form biopolymers, which are large molecules such as proteins. And these, in turn, became the first living cells like algae. And from this point... Things just progress upward through chance. It's utter absurdity. Nothing can form something. If there is no plan and everything is the product of mere chance, whatever that may be, then nothing at all has meaning. The world itself is meaningless. History is meaningless. There's no point to it. 
Jesus is the only sure thing. Otherwise, we might as well say as the ancients did, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is precisely the manner in which many of our contemporaries are living. They, they live empty lives and have nothing to show for it because meaning, uh, there is no meaning to life. The best philosophers knew, at least in part, how ignorant they were and how much they still needed. Plato said somewhat wistfully on an occasion, perhaps one day there will come forth a word out of God who will reveal all things and make everything plain, unquote. The Greeks didn't know where the word was until the early preachers of the Gospels told them. And yet, even though they witnessed the Son of God walking among them, they remained vastly ignorant. You look at our world that's heard the, world, the, the word proclaimed from pulpits such as this and on radio and on CD, going to faithful church buildings to hear the gospel proclaimed week in and week out, and they've rejected and moved in not a favorable direction, not of increasing certainty about the absolutes, but uncertainty and skepticism. We'd like to think about this secular worldview and how Paul addresses it in this, how we should be thinking Christianly. And uh, uh, this will be part one, and we'll continue it uh, next week. And if you don't like what I've done with the King's English, well, he's not here to slap my hand. So uh, we want to we learn to think and act Christianly, because that's what Paul addresses here in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. It could be said that the Ephesian letter pulsates with a double desire. On one hand, that believers have a fuller comprehension of what God in Christ is doing, and on the other, for that their lives may correspond to His work of grace. As we began this chapter, in verses 1 to 16, at the forefront was our relationship with the body, that we are to be walking in unity. We saw its basis in the first half a dozen verses where he even culminated with the illustration of the Trinity in verse 6, uh, uh, you know, where we've got uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And that is the basis for our, our unity. And then he launches into building of this unity that God has given uh, grace gifts to every child of God and even given gifted leaders to equip those gifted saints for the work of the ministry. And so if the first half of the chapter is geared and focused towards walking in unity, we'd have to say that this latter part is walking in holiness, verses 17 and following. We could possibly even uh, extend this into chapter 5 because he's going to go on to all these exhortations for believers of what this new thinking and acting in a Christian way looks like, that we are to be striving for purity as well as unity. There's a clear call to decisive action in laying aside the old and putting on the new, which we'll look at more next week. But it's making a clean break with ungodly thinking and behavior that used to be characteristic of the life of the believer before he knew Christ. How pertinent for our day as we try to 
ratchet up and, and, and brighten up our, our light witness for Christ. Let's read the text. Uh, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. Follow along as I read for us. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Now notice the contrast. In verse 20, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Beloved, could I invite you to follow the, the two walk injunctives, uh, noticing the old walk, which still characterizes some of you in the pews here this morning, and the new walk, for many of you, this new self in Christ that you experience, what it is to look like in our demonstrations of godliness and righteousness and holiness. So first of all, this, this first walk Walking not as Gentiles, verses 19 to 20. Walking not as Gentiles. The apostle starts with an intense appeal before us. Not only I say, but I, he says I affirm. Some translate this testify. I insist in the Lord or even implore you. It's a strong word of solemn appeal to those who are genuinely in Christ. He states the appeal negatively in verses 17 to 19, and then he'll give a positive twist to it as the truth is in Jesus, verses 20 to 24. But Paul wants their attitudes and actions to be clearly distinct from non-Christian Greeks and Romans with whom they lived. And we need to remember that their day was not unlike our day. Or maybe we should have put it the other way around, to think that we've got the corner on paganism in our contemporary society. It's it's got nothing on Ephesus. So his appeal all starts with the futility of their mind. This I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Futility speaks of that which is meaningless and is used extensively in the, the Greek Septuagint of Ecclesiastes to characterize life that isn't lived on the basis of the fear of God. Whenever we study Scripture, we're constantly looking, where else does Scripture flesh this uh, understanding out? And, and so if you want to cross-reference in your mind everything that the preacher has to say in Ecclesiastes of life without the Son. In Ecclesiastes We're told, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All that's done under the sun is vanity and striving after. What's it striving after? Striving after the wind. Trying to grab hold of that wind. It leads to nothing. Life is vain. Life is futile and without purpose unless that life is ordered around God and His creative and redemptive purposes. So to excuse God is to erase any purpose in life 
as you, the created, try to live without Creator who created you expressly for His glory. That's why the skeptics want to cast shame upon, and aspersions upon the truth of the Word of God, and, and atheists want to excuse God from the picture outrightly. That's why the psalmist tells us that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. You're denying your own conscience, which knows that there is a God, and you're denying creation, which witnesses to His majesty. This futility is a word, as I said, often translated vanity. And several times it's associated with, with idol worship, which un, not just unbelievers know well, but uh, we believers are good at creating idols, aren't we? Uh, things that are, are important but not the most important things that end up wrapping our time up in and our affections, emphasizing wrong priorities and pursuits. Now, he's not saying that the unsaved mind is empty, but they are filled with things that lead to nothing, nothing of God's glory, nothing of eternal consequence. They are good-for-nothing notions that fill their hearts and lives. And you'll notice that this message that he gives is to assault the unsaved mind, which the Word of God must do as a hammer that breaks the heart of stone. The Word of God must be proclaimed. Its standards must be held to for unsaved man to know that there is a God and that there is a hell to be paid for rejection of Him. And so, we ought to come to church with uh, humble heart and teachable hearts. Lord, we want You to salt our wills. We, we need our minds to be molded according to the dictates of the Word of God. So, the mind is crucial to His discussion here because people act as they think. If you don't fix the thinking, you don't get the actions right. It's not just... Uh, intellect or the ability to reason, but the capacity to think and to plan and make moral judgments and lifestyle choices where we're speaking volition and, and aim, they're all wrapped up in this. With a secular worldview, there are so many assumptions that guide non-Christian Gentiles in their thoughts about life and how they live. We, we look, you know, if you spend any time on the news, which I, I know you do, it's ludicrous to Christians to watch. It's like, how do they get from here to there? That's nonsensical. It's going to unpack a little bit about that with the darkness that's within them. But what is crucial to our thinking, again, if we're going to cross-reference passage in our mind as Paul gives his argument here, and we already understand the vanity of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, we must also insert Paul's discussion to the Romans in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. It's crucial when we think about the mindset and lifestyles which go together. There's a similar indictment there of the first chapter in Romans. With their, according to verse 21 of Romans 1, meaningless way of thinking, ignorance of God and His mercy, chapter 2 and verse 4 of Romans. Their impurity, verse 24, their greed, chapter 1, verse 29, and they have given themselves over to an impure lifestyle and that exchange of the truth for the lie. Think of people of that day that Paul was addressing, like the Stoics, who believed they had a coherent way of viewing the, the world and, and moral lifestyles. But their orientation and lifestyles were not ordered according to the revealed will of the one true God in the Scriptures. Greeks thought that the best part of human beings was their intellect, 
It was the best and the noblest and the most worthwhile pursuit. Philosophy to them was their savior. Yet the best of the ancient thinkers were distorted and morally lacking in spiritual understanding, according to this text. The futility of their minds that they were wrapped up in. Life apart from the one God and His Son, empowered by His Spirit, is meaningless. We must remember that. And that is the lens by which we observe our society and the age in which we live. They're not going to get to where we're at. They have not been enlightened by the Spirit of God, though they claim to be enlightened. There's no discernment to distinguish between right and wrong. And it not only not merely leads to ungodly lives, but we're talking about separation from the divine life that God imparts to believers through Christ. When, when Christ came into your life and invaded with His grace and salvation, it wasn't just to make you moral upstanding citizens. He came to give you that abundant life which finds its source in God Himself. That's why He would say in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. To be in Christ is to have the life. You remember what John says in his first epistle, chapter 5 and verse 12, that whoever has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. In fact, the wrath of God abides on him. They live under a condition of judgment and the wrath of God to come. So as we think about that, think about our, even our nation that we live in, the, our nation that God's abandoned, man who, who keeps on wallowing in and loving and pursuing his sin at the expense of God's truth. He, he's been so long-suffering in uh, years gone by when our nation was, was formulated, some of the early founders who, who wanted to, uh, they said, you, you can't rightly judge people without these principles of the Word of God. And we've gotten so far from that. We're not saying that all the early founders were believers, but to dismiss God's truth and to see where we got from here, God has been very kind for many years to preserve some semblance of order and morality and uh, even a freedom to worship as we see fit according to the dictates of the Word of God. We rode the wave of moral laws, but as man continued to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, everything is turning upside down at a breakneck speed. We look upon it and we're dumbfounded because as believers, we can see so clearly because we've been have the revealed truth of the Word of God, and, and we can discern moral issues because the Bible addresses it all, and it provides principles and examples for the faithful to follow. It's life that, uh, as we observe life, it's like a, a train wreck in, in slow motion that we are unable to stop and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Have you considered God's truth? Notice the extended description of Gentiles that Paul, Paul gives here in, in verses 18 and 19. He makes some hard-hitting comments and indictments against the Gentile world, Gentile being a euphemism for, for unbelievers. Even unbelieving Jews would uh, be guilty of this 
uh, horrible portrait that he paints, their thoughts about life and how they live in light of these convictions. He makes these hard-hitting things. He, he rattles off their vanity, their darkness, their alienation, their ignorance, their hardness, their loss of feeling, their lasciviousness, their uncleanness, and I think I just counted nine, their greediness. If you wanted to put all of these uh, hard-hitting comments and indictments under three main terms, summarize them under the, the, just three words, they'd probably be darkened, excluded, and callous. If you jotted those down in your, in your notes or in your thinking, he starts off with this, this darkness. He says they are being, they're in the state of being darkened in their understanding. This is just another term referring to what's already been said in verse 17. Vain in their thinking, darkened in understanding. It's written in such a way as to indicate that it's continuing It's a continued darkening condition, a state of darkness in spiritual understanding because they are separated from God. There is no light in life. It comes from not having the life and the light of God. They're alienated from Him, separated from the life that comes from Him. They're held in the grip of spiritual death. That was back back in chapter 2 and verse 1. We were in that same condition. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Which is the point of, you know, this darkness leads into that next word, uh, excluded. Excluded from the, the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Ignorance. This, this separation is viewed as both ignorance and hardness. Notice that this is not a passive ignorance, as if they're not culpable but one that comes because they rejected him and his witness. They are being willfully obstinate. And because of that willful disobedience, they refuse to bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. The very one who is the source of our joy and our glory is the world's enemy. Jesus is the great divide in, our, in thinking between a Christian and a secular worldview Between believers and unbelievers, he is the great divide. Man shuts his eyes to the glory of God. And he he calls his plunge into moral and intellectual darkness, enlightenment. And we would say that as an unenlightenment. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Ephesians, gives this excellent illustration emphasizing this point. He said, William Pitt, the younger, was one of the great prime ministers of England, a great intellect, and a friend of William Wilberforce, the man who devoted his life to the abolition of slavery throughout the British Empire. Wilberforce had experienced a genuine evangelical conversion, and this had made him the upright man that he was. It was because of his Christian convictions that he labored so long and struggled so hard against slavery. Pitt was a nominal Christian, as most Englishmen of that day were. But Christianity did not mean anything to him. In London in those days, there was also a great evangelical clergyman and preacher by the name of Richard Cecil. Wilberforce attended Cecil's preaching regularly and was delighted with it. It fed his soul. It warmed his heart. He wanted his friend, William Pitt, the prime minister, to go with him to hear Cecil. So Wilberforce often invited Pitt to attend church with him, but Pitt made excuse after excuse. He was always too busy 
But there came a day when Pitt told Wilberforce that he could accompany him. That Sunday morning, Cecil was at his best. Wilberforce was uplifted as he had, had scarcely ever been before under the preaching of the Word. He was, he was glorying in God and prayed for his friend. However, when the service ended and they were going out together, William Pitt turned to his friend Wilberforce and said, You know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Many, even in our day, have witnessed to their non-Christian friends. You've done it to your non-Christian neighbors and your non-Christian family members. They've come to candlelight services and they've sung the same songs with us. They've heard the same messages. And you've had that experience and been saddened by They're saying, there's nothing so great. Nothing so great. Nothing earth-shattering. You know, that sadness ought to grip our hearts and impassion our prayers that God would peel back the blinders, that God would give light to the darkened, that He would bring near as He draws near to sinners and calls them to faith and repentance. You notice that other term, uh, and when He speaks about this exclusion, it's an ignorance and a hardness of heart. There their ignorance is because of that hard heart. It's common in the Old Testament to, we read about hardness of heart. Probably the most memorable account that you read on Holy Scripture on that is in Exodus that you remember. It speaks of both Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God hardening his heart. Again, here in our, in our text, Paul makes the sequence clear in Ephesians 4, he makes it clear in Romans 1. People exchange the truth of God for idols, for lies, and for unnatural sexual practices. Constantly, God hands them over. You keep pursuing your sin, loving your sin, hardening your heart against a holy and loving God. That hardening precedes his handing them over to their own devices. F.F. F. Bruce states it this way. But one of the ways in which the wrath of God works is by giving sinners up to the course of their own choosing with this terrible consequence. Do you feel the emptiness and the weight of a loving God who welcomes sinners who repent and believe, and He lets them go to their own devices? He passes over them. Well, it is at once a guilty choice of men and a judicial act of God. We must recognize, you must recognize, if you are here without Christ, you are culpable before God this day for your darkness, for your callousness, for being the exclusion. So if we were to use those three terms, you know, darkened and hardness, and move on to that callousness that he speaks of, that, that hardness. Then in verse 19, they have become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Unbelievers have an, an unrestrained propensity to live for themselves. You know, I think that I'm probably the most self-centered person I know, but Paul is sure to uh, tell us here that uh, us believers don't have anything on unbelievers, as, as selfish as we may be, because of this callousness. Paul uses a rare word here 
when he says that they are callous. They have ceased to feel pain and become dead to feeling. Those of you that have calluses can bore into the, what he's talking about here, this, this numbness. The Greek tense suggests that they have reached this point after a period of rejecting God and His ways and now is hard and impenetrable and sensitive to God. You know, if you, if you sit here week after week hardening your heart towards God, you become calloused. This is the dangerous part of exposition and gospel-centered ministry because many of you have... have uh, Heard several times your need to repent and to believe, to throw your, yourselves at the feet of Christ and beg for mercy and forgiveness. You acknowledge your need, but you are not saved. You must act. You must act now before it's too late. So let me encourage you and, and shepherd you that come to Jesus today. And don't let another day go by of your hardening your heart to His message to come. All ye who weary and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. They've ceased to feel pain. No more pangs of conscience over their sin. You know, this callousness is demonstrated in three different ways that he mentions in this verse. Uh, It's demonstrated, first of all, in sensuality. Lasciviousness or debauchery. There's other translations called it unrestrained living. It's a, it's a word denoting lewdness or, or wanton conduct that shocks public decency. This person no longer cares to hide his, his or her sin. It includes an abandonment of God's design for sexuality and the pursuit of all kinds of sexual pleasures. And again, as we think about the, the vast chasm, the dividing point of Christ between a secular worldview and a Christian worldview, and we live in a country who has pushed God aside and abandoned herself to her sin, that is why we have this sexual revolution that's gone on. Uh, unbridled lust, as in 2 Corinthians twelve twenty one. These are works of the flesh that Paul writes to the Galatians about in Galatians 5.19. This is what happens in unredeemed fleshy lives. As Peter discusses this as a characteristic of unbelieving life, Peter says in, in 1 Peter 1, verse, uh, 1 Peter 4, in verse number 3, he says, For the time is already pa- Time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drunkenness, party, drunken parties, and abominable idolatries. It's right for a Paul to spend a little time painting the picture of how things, how how bad our testimony really was, our life without Christ. Whether we uh, demonstrated our our uh, our depravity as outwardly as the religious hypocrite does or not. We were in the same boat. And he paints it as bleak and as dark as it is. Jesus connects this, uh, this uh, sensuality as uh, proceeding out of the heart in the Gospel of Mark in verse, chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, we read his, his statement that for from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, 
fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So when you're, if you're an unbeliever and you're, you're in, engaging in your sin, say, so, well, I didn't mean it. Well, you did, because it comes out of the heart. The source of worship, what's supposed to be a worship of God, is a worship of the creation. So this callousness can be demonstrated in lives of sensuality. It can also be demonstrated in what Paul says is every kind of impurity. Every kind of impurity. Uncleanness, filthiness, dirt, refuse, impurity. Dr. Robertson suggests perhaps prostitution is in the mind of Paul when he writes this, for certainly Corinth and Ephesus could qualify for this charge. This, as the previous term of sensuality, is one of the, another work of the flesh of, and uh, of the evil inclination of the heart of man. It is the opposite of the holiness of God and what He seeks in the lives of believers who profess to follow Him. For those who profess to have abandoned their sin to follow Him in His righteousness. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And that third caveat he gives in talking about this calloused condition is this greediness, with greediness, an insatiable craving, greed, given rein to appetites and desires which are against the laws of God and man. One who always wants more, it doesn't matter if he's always chasing after the money or the sexual indulgences, it's never enough. He's never satiated. A host of sexual sins and excesses and perversions like we see in Romans 1 and even in our, the nation in which we live that God's abandoned to our sin. So it all culminates at the end of the verse here with this self-seeking mindset of the unbeliever. This disposition has absolutely no regard for the rights of others. It is the spirit of man who does not care whom he hurts and what method he uses so long as he gets what he desires. Jesus warned about these unrestrained appetites which an unbeliever can't master. They don't have the power of the indwelling spirit. In in Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundances of his possessions. So, so, so if you're chasing after the wind, the vanity of life that is characterizes life without Christ in darkness, or the darkness, whatever I said, <laughs> however you're working it out in your excess, whether it be for the excess of money or sexual indulgences, you're not going to find the fulfillment that you're looking for. So instead of a humanistic teaching of follow your heart, Christians need to fight against the, early, the earthly ploy. Later on in the next chapter, chapter 5 and verse 3 of Ephesians, Paul says, Immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So as he launches into the practical application and the implications of all the doctrine in, in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, and he said, blurts out in chapter 4 saying, Walk worthy of the calling which you've been called. It includes an abandonment, a throwing aside, a putting off of what, what we were known by. 
Colossians chapter, chapter 3 and verse number 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So we're supposed to be less idolatrous as believers. Commenting on this description of ancient pagan life, one writer asks whether Paul had put too much lamp black into his painting. This author goes on to say, quote, Let us answer this question with another one. If Paul were writing today, would his picture of those who live the pagan life be much rosier? Some cultured humanists of our day who repudiate the Christian faith undoubtedly lead morally respectable lives, but not all. A goodly number of them who dislike Christianity not so much for intellectual as for moral reasons, namely because it insists on purity and chastity. In any case, no, no clear-sighted observer of our human situation can deny that when men and women reject the blessings and sanctions of Christianity, they relapse into the ways of living not un- unlike Paul's Gentiles. Who will dare to say that the world today, which is the equivalent of the Gentiles in our letter, is not full of drunkenness, gambling, sexual violence, and that ruthless self-assertion which cares nothing for its neighbor's rights? And so as he paints that dark backdrop for the land in his day, having described the world in its darkness and its alienation and its futility, Paul exclaims, Verse 20 of our text, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. He launches into an extensive description of the Christian life. And notice his starting point. Where, does, where, where is the diving board that he launches off from? It's nothing that the world could come up with out of their own depraved hearts and the futile efforts of mere mortal man. Only the transforming power that comes into the world in the person and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where he launches off with this newness that's to be on display, verses 20 to 24. Newness on display. And he starts off this, this next sentence. So we just finished one sentence in that first point. We begin a new one here with a contrasting assertion. And as he affirms their identity, he says they've learned Christ. Now he's going to spend quite a bit of time, more time than we're going to even spend today because he doesn't just start here. He's going to launch off into every kind of description in this portrait of a life in Christ. But he starts off with learning Christ. He reminds them that they learned a different way to walk. It is not the previous walk that they had without Christ. It's based on their new identity, an entirely new way to live, shaped by Christ and His teaching. Worldviews and, and lifestyles of unbelievers are utterly opposed to this new life. You preach Jesus, there's eventually coming the divide, of which Christ is the divide. You look at secular schools and secular colleges and universities. They're not just looking through the long, wrong lens when they're not illustrating the history being doxological and for God's glory. That's not all that's wrong there. It's not just that they're, they're teaching evolution and leaving God's creative genius out of the picture. We are, we are living in a, a day of 
opposition and soon removal of rights to teach differently than the status quo. So he says, when, when they received the gospel, they were taught Christian discipleship required the renunciation of pagan vices. They're to cultivate this, this true Christian holiness, to be holy as he is, as other New Testament authors have written about. It's intriguing that he doesn't introduce a content, but a person. We must make much of that. No laws, no statutes, no ordinances or behaviors, not a mere fact or a doctrine, but a person. And he highlights that personal relationship and communion with the risen, ascended, and exalted Christ, the living head of the church, the body motif that he uses in the book, so that we could pray with Paul in Philippians 3.10 that we would know Christ. That's what he's after. Those that know Christ, as we received Christ as Lord, would live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as we were taught, Colossians 2, 6 and 7. This is kind of along the lines of in, uh, in John chapter 17. You remember this high priestly prayer of our Lord when He said in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Christians are Christians because they've entered into personal relationship with the living Lord. He makes every bit of difference. Learning Jesus changes at, uh, our lives at the deepest level possible. We are not just taught by Him or about Him, but we're taught in Him. To be in Christ is to have everything. He's the atmosphere in which teaching occurs. He's the school as well as the teacher. The historical Jesus himself on the Gospels is the embodiment of truth, not oral tradition. And this hopeless search for the historical Jesus. Whereas the world is ignorant of God, Christians have come to know him. The secular mind is hostile to Christ's teachings, but the believer joyfully enrolls and continually makes progress in the school of Christ. And so he gives us a series of, of three exhortations set up by these infinitives to explain uh, how you were taught. Though these are, uh, we, we, we've talked before about indicative imperative. You know, so imperatives are commands, and indicatives are just realities that are true of us. You were dead, now you are alive. That's an indicative reality. And so when we get to chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians, show you're alive. Show you're in Christ. Because of the indicative reality, there is imperatival force. This new identity in Christ becomes a vital perspective and even an enabling factor in living the Christian life. This parallel in Colossians, when, when Paul wrote to them, Colossians 3, therefore, ver verse 5 of Colossians 3, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality purity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So after he talks about you uh, in the first verse of you being raised up with Christ and keep seeking the things above, he gives this imperative to consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. 
Don't lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So as, as the image of God was twisted in Genesis 3, only through life in Christ are those image bearers of God start putting back into perspective so we can better image the God who we're in the, made in the image of. So he gives these three exhortations in uh, the text. We must see this, this indicative imperative tension in, in all throughout Paul's writings, the already and the not yet, uh, the, uh, both the reality of who we are in Christ and the requirement of those who are in Christ. Uh, one commentator says, he balances the indicative of the work of Christ on our behalf and the resultant change in our identity with the imperative that calls for us to actualize in our day-to-day lives what is already true of us in Christ, unquote. So though, though we're addressed in Scripture as saints of God, we're admonished to pursue sanctification. Similarly to the Colossians, he can, he can stress that they've been, they've been filled with the fullness of God, Colossians 2, 9 and 10, and yet he prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians 3.19 that believers be filled with the fullness of God. Well, I thought we were already filled. Well, we are filled, but uh, comprehend that, fill, that filling. So as we abide in Christ and we appropriate and consider and work it out, he says, make sure you take off in reference to your former manner of life. Lay it aside. Put off. I very seldom quote the, uh, uh, the New Living Translation, but it, it translates this, throw off. That just pictures what he's talking about here. Throw it off. Kind of like what I did with my suit coat during the offertory. It was too hot to preach with a, with a jacket on. Lay it aside. He calls upon them and calls upon any saint of God today to rid themselves of every corrupt practice that was part of our former lives. Basically, it's a call to ongoing repentance in our lives. Religious affection that points to regeneration is, is uh, pursuing repentance. We repented and came to faith in Christ, and that marks our daily experience. That old self, that solidarity with Adam in our sin, fallen and dead in transgressions and sins, alongside with our old identity and our state of corruption. And this, this take-off metaphor is taken from daily life with clothing. When you Take off your clothes. Well, take off the, the old person. Though at regeneration the old self was dealt a death blow and removed from unchallenged dominance, he's not totally done away with. He tries to rally. He tries to stand up and say, I'm still alive. Serve self. Serve the old self. It's a hard reality. We can't speak... We often hear this dual dynamic taught, don't we, that uh, you've got two natures within, and whichever one that you put the most time in wins. Well, that's not the picture that Scripture gives. He was de- dealt a mortal blow at the moment of our salvation, but he still tries, tries to gather his second breath and rally. We have this picture in, in Romans 6. Verses 11 to 13, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Even though he tried, the, the old self tries to rally and trick you into believing he's alive, Romans 6 affirms that the old man's been crucified. Colossians 3.9 asserts you have put off the old man with his doings. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So all that I was as an unregenerate son of Adam, liable to eternal doom and the slave of sin, I am no longer. I'm free and in bondage to Christ, the one who liberated me. So the Christian duty is to put off the old man in practice as well as creed. And you notice what, what replaces our put off. So we don't just put off sin. We don't just put off the old self. We don't just shake off the, the moth-ridden garments. He follows that up. Lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. In verse 23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That second it comes with imperatival force here, command. Be renewed. And there's a whole discussion which we don't have time for this morning. Uh, uh, the spirit of the mind, is that, is that lowercase s, my spirit, or is that uppercase s, the spirit of God? When we look at what Scripture has to say about this dual dynamic, we are, the Holy Spirit needs to reshape our thinking. We'd been resistant and, uh, and held captive to the deceptive desires of sin. Even if it's speaking of man's spirit, the Holy Spirit's still the operative agent, so that's why we're not going to spend much time discussing whether it's man's spirit or the Holy Spirit. The majority of English translations and many commentators opt for this being the human spirit. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 2. The battle is won or lost there. We can't get control over sinful actions unless we deal with it at the thought level. That is why this is a big part of, of the biblical counseling movement, of trying to get people to stop in the midst of their sin, to journal and to help their biblical counselor figure out what's going on in your thought process with what you think you deserve and desire. What's going on with the aspirations of your heart? What are you worshiping in that moment, self or the person with whom you were having an intense moment of fellowship with? Must get to the thought level. The battle's won or lost. In Christ, we've got the mental faculties, the heart, the, the mind's proper functioning that was dis that was in a disqualified state before Christ, that meaningless thinking. The old man's not renewed, he's not converted, but under the sentence of death and decay. Barth had put it this way, he said, every trait of the old man's behavior is putrid, crumbling, or inflated like rotting race or, or cadavers, stinking, ripe for being disposed and uh, forgotten. What a, what a picture for us to remember. Put off the rotten, the corrupt, put on the new, or, or be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on that new self. Again, we return to that, that dress motif, clothing, what you wear. We've got the positive counterpart to what he said negatively in verse 22. 
As the old man is stripped off, the new man is put on, not just in position, but in practice. We're aid through changed thinking. This new self, created after the likeness of God and manifests itself in, in righteousness and holiness. Notice again how he puts it in the text. Put on the new self, verse 24, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Both right dealings with man and right conduct towards God. Consecration and devotion are included. Righteousness and holiness, the proper fruit of embracing the truth, which he's going he's gonna to flesh that out a little bit uh, more. God sanctifies those whom he saves, not apart from their faithful active pursuit. And so he engages us in the battle to, uh, against all the unsaved mantra around us and the unsaved Christian uh, the unsaved worldview, we to live in opposition to that. In his first letter to Thessalonians, Paul uses that term Gentiles, which he uses here in Ephesians 4. He talks about pagans who do not know God. And that's the sense in which he uses it here as well. Gentiles, representing all the ungodly, unregenerate pagan persons. So as he addressed saints of that day, churches at Ephesus, almost every non-Palestine area in the New Testament times were surrounded by the same kind of paganism. So even though he uh, penned it here in Ephesians, it equally applied to the other lands around him and equally applies to our day. And one that helps flesh out the background of Ephesus he said, Ephesus was a leading commercial and cultural city of the Roman Empire. It boasted the great pagan temple of Artemis or Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But it was also a leading city in debauchery and sexual immorality. Some historians rank it as the most lascivious city of Asia Minor. The temple of Artemis was the center of much of the wickedness. Like those in most pagan religions, it's writ Rituals and practices were but extensions of man's vilest and most perverted sins. You had male and female roles interchanged, orgiastic sex, homosexuality, and every other uh, perversion common in that day. Artemis was herself a sex goddess represented by an ugly, repulsive black female idol that looked something like a cross between a cow and a wolf. She was served by thousands of temple prostitutes, eunuchs, singers, dancers, and priests, and priestesses. Idols of Artemis and other deities were to be seen everywhere in every size and made out of many different materials. You remember what happened when the gospel came? As, as Paul preached the gospel of Christ, the trade, the, the silversmiths rallied against the populace, against him and his fellow believers in Acts 19. We could go on to how vile it was. But it's not, no different than the land in which we live. And so the apostle calls us to action, to thinking Christianly in an unchristian age, in an unchristian land. Let's pray. Father, we understand that on the basis of who and what we are in Christ and of all that, 
all the purposes you have for us in Christ. You're redeemed, your beloved children. We're to be absolutely distinct from the rest of the world. The rest of the world, which doesn't know you, it doesn't follow you, it doesn't make any pretense except for in, in lost religion. We know that spiritually we've already left the world. We're citizens of a different land. So, Lord, would you cause us not to love the world or the things in the world, knowing that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in us. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from you, O God. It's from the world. The world's passing away and also its lust. But you promise that the one who does the will of God abides forever. Lord, cause your church, in spite of all the bleakness and the darkness of the age in which we live, might we recognize that it's not that different from other pagan lands of history. And as dark as the age grows, might the light of your church grow as well. We are part of your kingdom, what you are doing. We are like that mustard seed which starts off small and will extend you, Lord Jesus, promised to build your church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And will cause us to think Christianly. And thinking more consistently Christianly, cause our conduct to follow as well. We'll be cautious to give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen.